Today we're going to complete our mini-series called Enemies of God, Enemies of God, and this is part four. And I wanted to talk to you about the believer's response to God's enemies. Now we've talked about many of these different enemies, but today I would like to talk about how you and I ought to respond to these enemies of God. Now believe it or not, but enemies of God are not those people you see during the halftime of the Super Bowl where Sam Smith comes out with horns and a tail. That's not God's enemy. Those are, those are victims of God's enemies. <laughs> those are people who have been destroyed because of God's enemies. Why is God's enemy attempting to destroy humans? Because humans carry God's image. Satan hates humans because humans were made in the image and likeness of God. Whether they're saved or unsaved, Satan wants to destroy them. And so we have been warned uh, against these enemies of God, and we've read multiple times in the first three parts of this series that God's enemies are what? Those who exalt or those who, who rise up against the knowledge of God. Whatever comes up against the knowledge of God, that is an enemy of God. When I have had a thought that is against God's knowledge, I'm like, well, I wasn't against God, yeah, but I was against His knowledge. Well, that is an enemy inside of my mind. And you will, uh, you will probably agree with me that people are destroyed because of what happens in their minds. Marriages are destroyed because of what happens in a person's mind. People give themselves to what is evil, wrong, wicked, and destructive because of what's happening in their minds. This is the battlefield of Satan. That is where he conquers you. That's where he destroys you. That's where he deceives you. And that's where he wins every battle and ultimately the war in our minds. And so... The enemy of God, therefore, also is an ideology that comes up against the knowledge of God. And we are called by, the, by scriptures to pull down the enemies of God. So here's what we have to realize, that the enemies of God oftentimes seems, seems to be the good thing. But how many of you know, just because something seems good doesn't mean it's God. Because we tend to define good one way. I mean, if you were living during the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and, and you were kind of disconnected from all the ideologies and everything that was happening, and you saw fire and brimstone fall from heaven and burn up a whole entire city and kill everybody in it, would you think it's good? No, you would not. God did. If you lived during the time of Noah, where everyone only had evil thoughts. Every thought in man was wicked at the time. Now you see God pour down rain and cause the earth, the fountains of the earth to break open, burst open and flood the earth, women and babies and poodles, <laughs> little doggies, they all died. And if you had to be a fly on the wall, you would think, well, that wasn't good. God thought it was good, however. 
You see, we don't see as God sees. We're fallen. Adam's, Adam's mind didn't work the same way after the fall as it did prior to the fall. Our minds, our minds have been touched by sin and we no longer see as God sees. So he warns us throughout scriptures, watch out, watch out. There's a devil, there's an enemy, and he's trying to destroy you. But here's how he warns us against this enemy that's trying to destroy us. <clears throat> I'll just list a few, a few to you where he warns us against this enemy of deception. He says, let no one deceive you, Ephesians 5, 6. He says, do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, do not be deceived, again, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be deceived, Galatians 6, 7. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, Colossians 2, 8. He says, no one in any way, let no one in any way deceive you, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you, 1 John 3, 7. He says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3, 13. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, 2 Corinthians eleven three. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. He says, for false Christs shall arise and false prophets, these people that prophesy, these people that speak the future accurately. He says, these false ones that prophesy and these false Christs shall arise and will do wonderful miracles. They'll be miracle workers. We tend to think that God's hand is upon somebody because we see miracles take place in their ministry. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It says, uh, Jesus, remember Jesus saying, in that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me. How did they respond to Jesus? They said, what are you talking about, Jesus? We cast devils out in your name. He said, we prophesied in your name. We were prophets. We, will, we were demon caster outers. People came to us to get deliverance. What are you talking about? You don't know me. I was famous. <laughs> Everybody else knows me. Don't be deceived. For false Christ shall arise, false prophets, and will do wonderful miracles, so that if it were possible, which it isn't, even God's chosen ones would be deceived. You see, the Bible starts with Satan deceiving. That's his, that's his ammo. That's his, that's his game. He comes to deceive. Now, let me just tell you, if I was going to sell you a fake Rolex watch, I wouldn't be buying it at a kid's store, a plastic. No, I would, have to, I would have to get a fake that looks really close in order to deceive you. The closer the fake looks to the real, the more deceptive it becomes, right? And in order for Satan to deceive, he would have to almost preach the gospel. 
He'd have to almost be a minister of righteousness. Otherwise, how would anybody be deceived? If Satan walked in here and stood behind the pulpit, like Sam Smith with horns, a pitchfork, and a tail, you would go like, praise God, what a great word. No, you wouldn't, right? You would immediately, even the, even the unsaved people here would go like, that's not Christian. <laughs> Nobody would think that that's from God. But in order to deceive, somebody would have to come, like me, and would have to speak to you, like I am. <laughs> but you can discern. Why? Because you know the Word. The Word is what helps you discern right from wrong. So he says, false Christ shall arise, false prophets will do wonderful miracles, so that if, if it were possible, which it isn't, even God's chosen ones would be deceived. Matthew 24, 24. The Bible's constantly drumming away at this, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived. Watch out, watch out, ministers of righteousness. Watch out, prophets. Watch out, these miracle workers. Watch out, these people who look the part, who almost seem exactly as what you would expect God's messenger to look as. Angel of light. And so we see Satan, he starts by deceiving in the garden. He deceives Eve. And we see the Bible ends with Satan deceiving the many, even the elect, if that was possible. That is who he is, a deceiver. And over the last three weeks, we looked at this list of enemies Enemies who existed in the Garden of Eden, yet who are still active and very much functional today. But however, today we're going to consider the believer's response to these enemies. And the first enemy that we talked about was uh, liberalism, which is really what? Uh, liberalism is what? It's an ideology because it ends with ism. But yes, thank you, it's free thinking. As, a, a, as opposed to? Right thinking. Free thinking instead of right thinking. Now, it almost sounds good, doesn't it, to have free thinking. Like, ha, huh, I'm free. Praise God. Freedom. Isn't freedom good? And a minister of God comes and says, no, no, no. Free thinking will destroy you. Right thinking will cause you to live. Well, that's restrictive. That takes away my freedom. Therefore, that couldn't be God because where the Spirit is, there is what? Freedom. You see? <laughs> no, so. so free thinkers, these people will always shout what? Freedom! Right? We will free you from your oppressors and we will free you from having to work and we'll free you from having to pay your own way through college and we will free you from everything. We just free you from everything. But that is over and against right thinking. Right thinking. If your college was so important, it should be good enough to cause you to make money to pay that call. 
So, I don't know, there's just like a million thoughts that come to mind. But there's theological liberalism, and this is more than just a defective mind, it's a deceptive spirit. The word liberalism, as we discussed, comes from the word liber, liberty, which is a good thing, but the ideology thereof is a bad thing. So the way to respond to free thinking is to replace it, therefore, with right thinking. <clears throat> Alex, it's just one degree too cold here. Yeah, thank you. But how do you replace it? You pull down the strongholds of liberalism in your life when you renew your mind according to Scriptures. When you renew your mind according to Scriptures. Here's how you do it. Here's how you sure, surefire that you are free from the deception of liberalism, the ideology of liberalism. You ready? This is how you get free from this enemy of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are saved, but your body needs to work out. <laughs> Because it's busy worrying out, right? Wearing out. Your mind didn't get saved. Your mind has to be renewed. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Can everybody please say transformed? Okay, so many people want transformation by standing in prayer lines. That's not how transformation comes. I can't pray, you be transformed. I can pray you, you learn to renew your mind <laughs> and that will transform you. And so don't look for a magic wand in order to be transformed. If you have a loved one that needs to be transformed, you might be sitting right next to them today. <laughs> the way for anybody to be transformed is by having their minds renewed. It says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Can you see that? It's a transformed person that will know what is right instead of just, hey, free, free everything, free, free everything. No, they will be able to test and see that which is right because they know God's will since their minds have been, trans uh, been renewed. Liberalism, as correctly understood as free thinking, is also to be viewed as something else. And this is where it gets heavy, and this is where it gets serious. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Just want to warn you. <clears throat> Apart from th free thinking, if you understand it correctly, which it is as free thinking, you need to understand that it's beyond um, just somebody unwilling to embrace right thinking. You embrace right thinking by embracing God's thinking. Where's God's thinking found? Inside of scriptures. So when you renew your mind according to the word of God, you will have right thinking. But it goes beyond that. Um, it is also to be viewed as the result of God's wrath on a person. Let me just say that again. It is also to be viewed as God's wrath on a person. There are different ways to understand God's wrath. And here are, here are four different ways to understand God's wrath. First is eternal wrath. 
you will know this to be the word wrath. But I'm just going to say wrath, okay? So the first wrath is eternal wrath, which is that it is God's wrath experienced in hell forever. That is God's eternal wrath. Then secondly, the Bible speaks of a sowing and reaping wrath, which is God's wrath on those who sow evil and as a result reap evil in this life. Those people who are in prison are receiving God's wrath for the evil that they have committed. Those, um, many people receive evil in this life for the evil that they have sown. This is God's sowing and reaping wrath. Thirdly, we see the Bible speak of consequential wrath. Consequential wrath, which is God's discipline on those who need it. Many of us have experienced consequences in our lives. We knew to do the right thing. We didn't do it, and now we're paying for it. God says, don't go into debt. You go into debt. Now you're paying for it. Consequential wrath. God told you to be faithful. Weren't faithful, and now you're dealing with the consequences thereof. But then, here's the one that I would like to point to. It is the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment, which is when God abandons a person or he abandons a nation or he abandons a generation. And this is because they willfully suppressed the truth of God by by, by buying into false theories of truth, the ones that we are talking about. They abandon God's thinking in order to have free thinking. You follow what I'm saying? They abandon God's truth in order to rather look to humanity and say, let's rather, instead of saying, instead of saying what God says is true, we're rather going to decide what truth is by taking a vote. The theory of, of consensus theory of truth. Or we are going to abandon what God says is true because we believe truth is relative to me as an individual. So what they do is they suppress God's truth in order to embrace their own newfound and designed truth. And when people do this willfully, relentlessly, then we see God abandons them and that is His means of having wrath on them by walking away from them, by stepping aside and let the very enemy that they so loved to embrace, let that enemy then consume them. That is God's abandoning wrath. Now you might say, well, Jacques, why don't we rather just talk about subjects that we find in Scripture? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Because this subject is in Scripture. Now I'm sure that we can imagine God's eternal wrath, and that's hell, a lake of fire. We, sure we, uh, we can imagine sowing and reaping wrath, like somebody does evil, they kill somebody, therefore they get killed. Capital punishment, we, sh- we know consequential wrath. I, didn't, I chose to do the wrong thing and now I'm living with the consequences. That is God's hand in a person's life, teaching them to learn to obey Him. If you're going through a hard time because of what you've done, this is God saying to you, well, start doing the right thing. When you're going through consequences, d- don't think it's not God. God fixed the end of every single choice you make. He says, if you hang with uh, bad company, 
the end of that road is what? Corruption. <laughs> if you choose to be with the wise, the end of that road is what? You become wise. Right? Every single choice you make ends somewhere and God's already fixed that somewhere. He's already telling you that there's a road that is wide and many go after it because everybody's right in their own eyes. He says, but at the end of that road, I have fixed at the end of that road destruction. But then there's a narrow road and I have fixed at the end of that narrow road life. And so let me show you the, God's wrath of abandonment and what it looks like. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God. Okay, so many people say, well, this is the New Testament. God no longer has wrath. All of His wrath was poured out on the cross. Yes, His wrath against those who truly believe in Christ. His eternal wrath against your sins. His eternal wrath against your sins has been poured out altogether on Christ. But if you sow the wrong thing, you're going to reap it. If you break the speed limit, you're going to pay a fine. If you choose to do the wrong thing, there's going to be a consequence. These things still exist. God's wrath is still in operation. But God's abandoning wrath is still in operation too. <clears throat> says it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godless and wickedness of people. Who are these people? He says, those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's Invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and have been understood. What is he saying? He's saying that every single person knows that there is a God. Plainly stated, if I show you a painter, you can assume that there is a painter somewhere. If I show you a painting, you know somebody painted it, right? We're not though, nobody believes everything comes out of nothing. Nobody truly believes that. If I show you a painting, you know that there's a painter. If I show you a building, you know there must be a builder somewhere. I've never met him, never seen him, but I know he's there. I see the painting. I've never met the painter. I've never seen him. Don't even know his name, but I know he's there. In the same way, this says right here, for God has revealed Himself, all His invisible qualities in creation. <laughs> you go, there's a creation. Well, then there must be a creator somewhere. Never met Him, never seen Him, but there must be a creator. So this is what it's saying. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Why? So that people are without an excuse. <laughs> Nobody is going to have an excuse. One day when they stand before the Lord and said, I never knew you existed. No, you knew. You knew. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but they're thinking, ha, guess what? They're what? Their thinking became futile. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. 
because their hearts have been darkened. They do things like, th- th- things that are very unreasonable, like, s- like fighting to save the whales while also fighting for the freedom to kill babies. Like that's a darkened heart. That is a person who's, who, who, who God has abandoned to a depraved mind. Their hearts no longer see because their minds have become defective. Romans 1 verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over. Therefore God gave them over. This is abandoning them. He left them. He gave them to the very thing that they loved so much. He gave them over in, in the sinful desires of their hearts to what? Sexual imp- impurity for the degrading of their bodies and with one another. This is a sexual revolution. So God abandons people who suppress His truth all the time and elevate their own truth. He abandons them to a sexual revolution, which is what we saw in the 1960s. That is God's wrath. And then in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. He gave them over to shameful lusts. And here are the shameful lusts. He lists them. Even their women exchanging natural sexual relationships with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust, lust for one another. Men with men. Men committing shameful acts with other men and deceived in themselves the due penalty and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So first, when God abandons, He abandons unto a sexual revolution. It says there in verse 24, He hands them over to sinful desires, sexual impurity. And then in verse 26, He hands them over to shameful lusts, homosexuality and lesbianism. And then in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, the next verse, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, again, it's about the knowledge of God. They thought themselves better. But it's love. Therefore, it must be God. No. God said, no, that's not what love is. And so they judge God because they believe God doesn't know what He's talking about, and they do. So it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Excuse me, verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, it wasn't worthwhile. Throw the Bible away. It's archaic. It's out of date. It's old-fashioned. Throw it away. He says, just as they uh, didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved or a defective mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They do what ought not to be done. They do what ought not to be done. They support everything that ought not to be done. Because they have defective minds, depraved minds, they don't think in light, they think in darkness. Their hearts have been darkened. How can that be changed? Well, repentance. (laughs) Uh, Repentance. Repentance. And then a renewing of your mind according to the Word of God. That's how transformation comes. So how do we, how do we respond to the enemy of God called liberalism? Renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. Secondly, we talked about secularism. Secularism. 
secularism. Remember the words that this comes from is the word seculum, which is here. Mundus, which is now. That means here and now. Secularism are those who live for the here and for the now because they do not believe that there is an eternity. They do not believe that there's an ultimate judge to be faced. They believe all we have is this and all we have is now and science is God. Science rules everything. Instead of living for the here and now, the way we respond to this is we live with purpose but we live with eternal purpose. We live on purpose towards eternity. The only way for you to have an impact and to make sure that this enemy of God doesn't get a foothold in your life is when everything you do, you do in light of eternity. You see, my personal definition of success is to one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. That is my definition of success. Many people have many definitions. Mine is eternal. Why? Because everything I do matters eternally. Everything I do here matters then. And I have to live now as if uh, knowing that one day I will stand there. <laughs> You know, we, we've been having a lot of different meetings on Sunday nights with all the different um, uh, dream teams. And we just finished meeting with the children's ministry, uh, leaders or workers in the children's ministry. And one of the reasons we're having that, and there are multiple reasons for it, but one of the reasons for that is because we're working towards becoming a more biblically-based, well-ordered church. A biblically-based, well-ordered church because... Everything we see in scriptures, we want to bind our consciences to. We want to bind our conscience to scripture, not to culture. We want to bind our conscience to a verse, not to a denomination. We want to bind our, our conscience to what the Bible says. And we are an ancient faith. Christianity was birthed by Jesus 2,000 years ago. Therefore, if we don't have an ancient Christianity, we don't have a Christianity, right? <laughs> we, have to be in, we have to function the way scriptures show the church to function. And that's one of the reasons we've been having these meetings because it's, I know that as a pastor, I stand here on Sundays and pastor this church, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'm going to be standing before the Lord and I will have a harsher judgment than everybody else. The teacher, the Bible says, has a harsher judgment. So it's really important for me that we bind our consciences to Scripture in the way we worship, in the way we pray, in the way the church is set up, in the way the leaders of the church, in the messages we teach. If it's not binding our consciences to Scripture, what are we binding our consciences to? Right? My definition of failure is this, not hearing those words when you stand before the Lord. That is failure. I don't care how many people you know, how influential you've become, <laughs> how much money you've made, how many companies you've built. 
I don't care what car you've driven, how many homes you were able to purchase, none of it matters. Nothing matters. When you arrive there one day, not hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. That is a complete failure. And so the way we respond to secularism is by living toward eternity. Because at the foundation, at the root of secularism, they don't believe that's there. Therefore, they don't believe that God is there. Therefore, they believe that they are, with science, the ones who are the creators of their own fate. The third enemy of God we talked about is humanism. And I can see we're not going to get through all of them, but our response needs to be very clear. The way we respond to humanism, ladies and gentlemen, let me first articulate humanism. That's those who believe <clears throat> that everything is about man. Man is the ultimate. Humanism believes that man is the creator of his own destiny. Humanism believes um, that life is about finding happiness and life is about bringing out your own personal, um, your own personal, um, not talent, I'm so sorry. Potential, thank you. Human potential. Now, that, just so you know, if, if the pulpits are filled with humanism, it's over that issue right there. Human potential, human potential, human potential. Wait a minute. What about the glory of God? You know how they get there? I say to them, I say to a guy, a pastor, I'm saying, why are you teaching? Why are you like a motivational speaker? Because I just want to help people. I just want to bless people. I believe that's my calling. Like, well, no, that's not your calling. As a minister, you're supposed to bind people's consciences to Scripture. Yeah, well, they say, if I can help somebody fulfill their potential, if I can bring their potential out, God will be glorified. I'm like, you want to tell me Elon Musk is not living to some full potential, level of full potential? Is he glorifying God? Well, no. <laughs> No, a person can live to the full potential. Michael Jordan, living to his full potential. Was he glorifying God by being a great basketball player? No. So when somebody says, well, I just want, I just want them to, I just want to bring out their potential from the pulpit. That is not the gospel. That is not what I'm supposed to be binding your conscience to. You aren't supposed to be walking out of here after a service going like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become the greatest basketball player in the world. Pastor said I can be what I want to be. <laughs> I can be all things through Christ. No, you can't. That is not the gospel. That's not our calling. That's, a, that's humanism coming from the pulpit and it's filled the churches. It's filled the church today. But the way to fight humanism which is over and against living for the divine. I, I just want to say this quickly. When you ask almost any parent, what do you hope for your child? 
What are you going to hear? That they'd be happy one day. Humanism. Humanism. What I hope for my child is that God be glorified even if it costs them their life. That God be glorified even if it means they're going to be persecuted. Be God, that God be glorified. That is, that is the scriptural version of, of life. Humanist's life? No. I hope that my child finds happiness one day. Well, how do we fight humanism? Well, we fight humanism through teaching, preaching, submitting to, and believing a doctrine everybody hates. <laughs> this is a doctrine, this is the most hated doctrine in all of the world today. And the reason humanism is so rife, even within the church, is because nobody wants to touch this doctrine. Even though it's in the Bible, nobody wants to touch it. And I'm sure you're guessing which one it is. Total depravity. Because until a person knows how God views the truth about a human, anthropology, the truth about man, is not that he's elevated, it's that he's fallen. That's the truth about man. And until everybody recognizes that to be true about them, why would they run to Christ? Because they don't see themselves fallen. They don't run to a Christ that forgives them of their sins. They just get familiar with a Christ that loves them. God loves you. Come to Him because He loves you. No, run to Him because you're depraved. And there's consequences. There's eternal hellfire awaiting for, for, for a fallen human being, right? So you might say, oh, well, what is the doctrine of total depravity? The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean you are, you are so depraved that you're as bad as you possibly could be. It's not utterly depraved. It's totally depraved. There's a difference. To say somebody's utterly depraved, it means that they are, they are just so debased and so wicked they couldn't go any lower. How many of you can walk out here and sin more than what you've sinned last week? Yeah? All right, see? You're not utterly depraved yet. <laughs> All right? You can be worse than what you currently are. Total depravity means that the total sum of who I am has been touched by sin. As Adam, prior to the fall, his mind was untouched by sin. After the fall, his mind was touched by sin. Prior to the fall, he was going to live forever. But after the fall, his body was touched by sin. Now he's going to wear out and die. Prior to the fall, his desire was for God. After the fall, now his eyes are open to both good and evil. And now his desire needs grace to desire accurately. I love how Augustine says that he says, to will is of nature, but to will aright is of grace. To will is of nature. Everybody wills, everybody desires, everybody wants, but to want aright and to will, desire aright and to will aright, that is of grace. Only God's grace can cause you to want the right thing. 
So total depravity simply means that every part of who I am, my eyes do not see the truth because I'm now blinded by sin. My ears do not hear the truth because I've now become deaf because I am a fallen creature. My mind no longer can submit, the Bible says it cannot submit to the will of God. My heart no longer desires rightly because my heart is a stone and then by the grace of God, God comes and as he breathed life into Adam, and Adam was a living being, so he breathes life into this person who is dead in their sins, and they become alive unto God. That's the born-again experience. But what we don't teach anymore, nobody understands it, is this idea of being totally depraved. And so now when you ask somebody, are you a good person, they will 99.99% of the time say, yes, I'm a good person. When in fact, that's not true. That's not true. I love how Ray Comfort outlines it. He says, have you ever stolen anything? Yeah. He says, well, doesn't that make you a thief? Have you ever lied? Yeah, I've lied. Well, doesn't that make you a liar? Yeah, well, have you ever lusted after somebody? Yeah, I've lusted after somebody. Well, doesn't that make you... Um, an adulterer at heart. So you were a lying, thieving adulterer at heart and you're saying like, yeah, I'm pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> Have you ever hated somebody? <laughs> it's, it's like you're a murderer at heart. So look at what happened here when humanism creeps in. And I'm just going to close with this one, humanism. Look at what happens when, when humanism creeps in. Humanism elevates man, makes man what he ought not to, causes him to see himself as he ought not to see himself. All right? That's humanism. <laughs> and it's very clearly the problem that we have in the world today. This is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar who only saw himself and his own greatness. That's all he looked at. God was no longer revealed to him. And because of that, he went crazy. Paul Washer actually said this. He said, quote, The greatest judgment that can fall on a, on a people is when God removes his revelation of himself to them. So when God stops revealing himself to you, that's the worst kind of thing that could ever happen to you. And this is what happened to, Dan, to, to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar here. I want to read it to you from Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. It says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is this not, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? See, this guy had a problem. He was a humanist on steroids. All humanists really believe that, just so you know. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. That is what is, that is, what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will, and will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. Immediately, 
what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, watch this, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High instead of self. I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. This is the testimony of an ex-humanist. <laughs> let, me, let me say this as far, as far as that is concerned. We are never more insane than when we are only thinking about our own greatness and refuse to acknowledge God. We are never more crazy than when we suppress the truth of God about who He is and who we are. That's why people who do not believe in the doctrine of total depravity, they really have an inflated view of man, especially self. And they trivialize the very thing Christ came to save. You see, that's one of, there are many benefits to understanding the doctrine of total depravity. Number one, it humbles you. That He would save somebody like me is humbling. It causes you to understand people when they do reject God. When they do sin, when they do fall. Because you understand depravity. But what we see in this example of King Nebuchadnezzar is that we're never more insane than when we think about ourselves and refuse to think about God. We become most insane when we become completely earthly-minded, materialistic, and fleshly focused, just like humanists do. Why, do you, why do you think there's so much insanity in the world? Humanism does that. Humanism does that. Why do you think people have defective thinking? Because of the wrath of abandonment. That's what, how God responds to somebody who consistently, continually suppresses His truth. We are never more sane than when we, are, when we stop thinking about things on earth, but rather become eternally minded. That is the most sane mindset you can have, is to think God's thoughts after Him, According to scriptures, that is the most sane you'll ever be. And then when you're aiming everything you do here in this life towards that day when you stand before Him in heaven. To be eternally minded is the most sober mind you can have. The inabilities of a fallen human are clearly outlined in scriptures. It says in Matthew 7 verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. In John 3, 3, it says, well, let me say, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. In other words, an unsaved individual cannot bear good fruit. He has an inability. John 3, 3 says, Jesus responded to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, man, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's an inability. This fallen man has an inability. You see how the scriptures show man who they really are. Humanism 
deceives man to think he's somebody that he's not. John 3, 5 says, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's an inability. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's an inability. Nobody can come to Jesus unless God does that. John 6, 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Again, there's an inability for man, fallen man. He's not as elevated as he thinks he is. He has an inability. He cannot come to Christ unless God grants him the opportunity to do so. In John 14, 16, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. The world cannot receive him. They have an inability to receive the Spirit of God. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. There's an inability. Then it shows in Romans 8, verse 5 and 7, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind, for to for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, hates God, hates God. The mind that is set upon the flesh, just like Nebuchadnezzar, hates God. For it does not submit to the law of God. Watch this. Indeed, it cannot. It has an inability. The man whose mind is set upon the flesh instead of the spirit, number one, is an enemy of God. He hates God. He's hostile toward God. But neither can he submit his thoughts to the ways of God. He has an inability. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, he says, But a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. He cannot understand them. There's an inability. And I wanted to read this to you because oftentimes when I bring up the total depravity of man, people always go like, well, that's his opinion. Well, that, they, there he goes again. <laughs> that, uh, you know, yet the Bible says over and over again that fallen man cannot. He cannot. But yet humanists want to elevate man And the Bible says, no, no, no. Man, as a matter of fact, is blind, deaf, and more miserable than what they realize. Unless God, through His grace, steps in. Amen. I'm going to close there because um, there's just so much more that I wanted to share with you. But... <clears throat> I want to remind you that the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 that the government shall be upon this promised child's shoulders, this promised child to come, Jesus. Before he was born, this is prophesied about him, the government shall be upon his shoulders and of its increase there shall be no end. It'll increase and increase and increase and increase. It says, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, it says, it's like a seed. It's like that seed. It grows and it grows 
and it grows, and then it becomes, guess what? The Bible says the biggest tree in all of the garden. That's the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, the prophet prophesies and he saws this vision, sees this vision of God cutting a rock with his own hands from the mountain. That rock rolls down the mountain and he strikes this statue built with all these different materials. Every material representing a different kingdom built by man's hands. And when that rock strikes the feet of this whole statue representing all the different man-made kingdoms, they all crumble. But then that rock starts growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. It doesn't stop growing until it fills the whole earth. Who's the rock? Cut by the hand of God, Jesus. He destroys all other kingdoms, and His kingdom is the last to stand. I read to you last week. (laughs) Excuse me. I read to you last week about how his kingdom, he says that after he was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, ascended, and was seated at the right hand of God. For what purpose? Waiting until all of his enemies are made his footstool. Until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. That is prophesied in the Old Testament and then again in Hebrews. Why? Because God's kingdom cannot, will not stop. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No enemy can stand against him. And you and I have been called to participate. To participate in this great victorious move towards ultimate victory. Now he's going to be victorious whether you participate or not. Whether I participate or not. He is going to pull down. Secularism will come down. Secular humanism will come down. Liberalism will come down. Relativism will come down. Pluralism will come down. Every one of these enemies of God that lifts itself up against the knowledge of God and judges God, God will ultimately judge. And guess what? We get the opportunity to participate and to preach the Word of God because you can only respond to a lie with the truth. It's the only way you can deal with it. And we get to participate in it because God is victorious. Amen? Amen. If you're going to participate in it, here's how you do it. You make sure that you are free from all of the lies. Firstly. Secondly, then you make sure that those within your house are free from all of these lies. And then you make sure that you get rooted and planted and participate in a church that fights all of these lies and don't actually preach them. (laughs) Don't support those guys. And then what you do, after you got you right, your house right, and your children right, and you, with, and you have joined a church where you are a city on a hill, then you bring the truth of God to your community. You are a microcosm of what God is doing throughout the whole world and ultimately will win the world. 
Tell you what, there's so much to be said about this, so let's pray. (laughs) Lord, we pray for your word to take root in our hearts. I pray, Father God, that as we see your kingdom marching forward, that we have the opportunity to jump in and be a part of of, uh, those you have called. And we can be a part of that which you are doing. I pray, Father God, that we are free from all deception and all lies in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.